Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I will cover Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. I've entitled it, God is Righteous, but Nobody Else Is. Nobody, neither Jew nor Gentile, is righteous before God. Now our context is this, chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul spent a lot of time talking about how the Jews were sinners even though they had the oracles of God. They had all the advantages of being a New Testament Jew because they, their uh, opportunity for salvation was first. They were first in time and first in privilege when compared with the, with the Gentiles. But unfortunately, they sinned like crazy. And so Paul was trying to tell them, just because you have the, the law doesn't make you righteous. You've got to keep the law. That was the theme of chapter 2. And so he could have been misinterpreted as saying, well, therefore the law is bad because it hasn't produced any righteousness in you sinful Jews. Now he's trying to defend against an overemphasis on what he said or a misinterpretation of what he said, and, tr- and he's going to go back and say, well, now, just because you're sinful, because you are not acting like a circumcised Jew ought to act, that doesn't mean circumcision is not good. And just because you are not following the law, that doesn't mean the law is not good. So he's he's guarding himself against misunderstanding here in this section. He's going to start out chapter 3 that way, and then at the end of our section here, He's going to talk about how everybody's a sinner, not just Gentiles, but Jews. You are sinners, too, which is back to his main theme that he started out in chapter 2. But he's going to take a little time out here to guard against an extreme interpretation of what he's saying. So here we go, Romans 3, verse 1. So what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? What Paul is doing, he's referring to the end of chapter 2, and where he where he very strongly showed that the Jews were not any better than anybody else as far as their sin. For example, in Romans 2.29, he says this, On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. So he's telling the Jews, quit saying that God loves you and praises you and thinks you're wonderful because you have the law. No, you've got to be born again by the spirit in your heart. You've got to be an inward Jew, not just an outward Jew. And so then, after he emphasizes the inward so much, he wants to go back and say, but wait a minute now, so what advantage did the Jew have? He wants to talk about those outward advantages the Jews had. There's no, there was nothing wrong with those outward advantages. It was the, What was wrong was that the Jews weren't taking advantage of it. The Jews were thrown back to a position of equality with Gentiles because of their lack of faith, not because the privileges they had were of no account. Now, he takes... He's not going to talk about what is the benefit of circumcision until he gets back to Romans 9 through 11. He's going to talk about, in Romans 9 and 11, the problem of the Jews not believing, yet God is still faithful to his covenant. He's going to deal with that a little bit in this passage, too. But he but just kind of gives us a, a, a cursory introduction to the topic right here, what is the benefit of circumcision. So Paul's de-emphasis of things Jewish in chapter 2 naturally led to questions for example, well, then what is the purpose of God's work with the Jews? If, is it all of naught? Because the Jews disobeyed? Is God still going to be faithful to the promises he made to the Jewish people? The famous Abrahamic promises of land, offspring, and blessings to the nation? Well, he's going to tell us later in Romans 9 through 11. Absolutely, those Abrahamic promises are still good. We'll get there eventually. We now go to Romans 3 verse 2. He's answering that rhetorical question of what is the benefit of circumcision. Not rhetorical, but the question he asked, what is the benefit of circumcision? What advantage does the Jew have? And at verse 2, he says, considerable in every way. There's plenty of benefits. 
first. They were entrusted with the spoken words of God. That's the advantage the Jews had. They were entrusted with the spoken words of God. They held those words in trust. The laws given on Mount Sinai were held in trust by the Jews. And what did they do? Completely trashed the whole... They, they caused the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles, as Paul said in the previous chapter. But they were entrusted with the words before the Gentiles had them. Now, he says, first, they were entrusted with those spoken words, the law of Moses. He doesn't get around to second advantage till he gets to Romans 9, 4 through 5. That's, I'm assuming that's being in the covenant. We'll, we'll get there eventually. But right now, he's talking about they got the scriptures before the Gentiles did. And again, as I said, entrusted means that implies a duty, as the NIV Study Bible says, a duty which was not carried out by the Jews. Notice that Paul says in verse 2, what are the advantages of the Jews? Considerable in every way. In other words, he's really trying to emphasize, look, there's nothing wrong with the word of God. This is a, a common false dichotomy. Oh, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in being circumcised in my heart. So I don't need to read the Bible anymore. That's external. That's the letter of the law. Nonsense. The word of God is... It's the word of God. It was written by God, and, and it's just because it's external and just because the Jews abused it doesn't mean it's not good. Paul says in verse 2, Romans 3, that the Jews were entrusted with the spoken words of God, as my home and Christian study Bible translates it. Other translations say the oracles of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. I don't like that much. It sounds better. Oracles, divine words, rather than spoken words of God. The NIV says the very words of God. I think that's kind of a weak translation, too. So I like the KGV and the ESV here. They were, they were entrusted with the, the Jews were entrusted with these oracles of God. And that would be all the books of the Old Testament. They were spoken. The prophets wrote them down. That's why they were spoken, because God spoke with them to the prophets. And, of course, they were written down for us, for the Jews. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, in a time of Protestant-Catholic controversy, made an interesting point. He says Catholics would probably have preferred Paul, that Paul had said the priesthood was the advantage, because after all, the Jews had a priesthood, and the rest of the world, well, they, they had a priesthood, priesthoods of pagan gods, idols, but they didn't have a priesthood for, of, of the true God, Yahweh, but the Jews did. But notice that that was not what Paul said, that the Jews' advantage was. The Jews' advantage was the word of God, and that's why Protestants would probably be happy with this. That's why I'm a Protestant today. I believe the word of God is much more important than the priesthood, although I do believe in the priesthood of all believers, but I don't believe in the sacerdotalism of the Catholic Church, which I think is pretty much an abomination. We go to verses 3 and 4 of chapter Romans chapter 3. What then, if some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. God must be true, even if everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Now, this verse, at first blush, is a little bit confusing. Verse 3, Paul says, What then, if some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? God's faithfulness to do what? Well, is God's, well, is, there's a split of opinion on that. Some people say it's God's faithfulness to punish Israel for its sin. That's the NIV study Bible's option. The other option is God is faithful to his covenant people and his promises. So what is God faithful to do? To punish for sin or to establish his promises? Well, I think the answer is to establish his promises. I disagree with the NIV study Bible here. Because here's what Paul is saying. If some did not believe, that means some Jews did not believe, and obviously some Jews did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to Abraham of land, offspring, and blessing? No, why? Because there's others who do believe of the Jews. They accepted Christ, for example. 
And so God's faithfulness is not canceled because, because now the Gentiles are, are children of Abraham as well as the Jews. And, of course, later on, Jews are going to be grafted back into the olive tree, as Roman, Paul will talk, back, talk about in Romans 9, 9, 10, and 11. So God's faithfulness has not been canceled because of this unbelief of the Jews. Now, remember, Paul has been railing against their unbelief in the last chapter, and so this would be a, a logical question that someone might ask, and, well, gosh, if the Jews are so sinful, maybe God's just thrown them on the ash heap. And if he did that, well, then what, all of it, what about all of his promises? I thought we believed the word of God to be true, all these articles, all these promises. Paul says, no, God's true, even if everyone is a liar. And, by, and if you listen to the culture today, everyone is a liar. It's very hard to find anybody speaking truth these days. But God is true, and Paul quotes an Old Testament scripture, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. That is a quote from Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. I think that was David. It was David who was referring to his sin, his adultery with Bathsheba, and his murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. David knew darn well he had sinned, and he knew that God was blameless in judging him. Now, Paul's quotation of this psalm would back up the option, the NIV study Bible's option, that God's faithfulness was his faithfulness to judge sin. So that's a pretty strong argument. But on the other hand, it seems to fit pretty good. The overall theme here, the other option is that God is faithful for his covenant when it doesn't look like he would be since he's judging the Jews for their sin. It looks like he's going to wipe out his covenant promises. But whatever it is... God is faithful. God's faithfulness will not be canceled by the Jews' unbelief. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's going to come through. He's going to both punish sin, and he's going to establish his covenant promises. Now notice Paul in verse 3 says, What then if some did not believe? Did not believe what? Well, here's some options. They didn't believe that the Old Testament was the word of God. Well, it can't be that, because obviously they did believe that the Old Testament was the Word of God. It could be they didn't morally practice what the Old Testament said. In other words, they believed that the Old Testament was the Word of God, but they didn't practice what they believed. Well, that could be, but I think most probably option number three is they didn't believe the prophecies concerning the Messiah, and thus they rejected Jesus. That's what they didn't believe. They didn't believe in Jesus. We go now to verse 5 of Romans 3. But if our, and Paul is referring to himself as a Jew, our, we Jews, if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I use a human argument. Is, God's unright is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Now this verse, again, is a little bit confusing at first blush. So let's break it down. How can our unrighteous highlight God's righteousness? Well, and remember now, Paul's talking about our in the sense of us Jews, how, how does the Jews' unrighteousness highlight God's righteousness? Well, this way, the more Israel was disobedient, the more God was faithful to his covenant promises. He never went back on the promise of land, offspring, and blessings that he made to Abraham and Abraham's successors. This is Adam Clark's point. So when they sinned, and everybody in the world looking at that sin will think, well, that's it as far as the covenant promises, and yet the covenant promises were still established. They still inherited the land, and eventually, even though the land was taken away from them, then the Gentile church, or not the Gentile church, the church, uh, inherited those promises, and pretty soon the, the church started spreading all over the world, and, and there was blessings to the nations. 
Abraham's promises were fulfilled. And so the fact that Israel could send so much, and yet at the same time in God's providence and sovereignty, he could establish his kingdom all over the world and the base, even though those who had received the first covenant promises had sinned so much, it's an incredible thing. It highlights God's righteousness even more because God really didn't need, or didn't have to. He was under no obligation to establish his covenant, to establish his people, to establish his kingdom on the earth, given the, the depravity of man's sin of Israel's sin in particular, and so Israel's sin highlights, makes it more obvious God's righteous, righteousness. If Israel had had flown straight and done and, and basically behaved halfway righteously, it would not have been such a remarkable thing that God spread the Jewish the kingdom of God all over the world and gave them land and so forth. But but the fact that he did that for a sinful and rebellious people really shows that God was righteous to fulfill his covenant, okay? So that explains the first part of the verse, how our Jewish unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness. And then he says, but then I've given if that is if that's true, what are we to say? I use a human argument. If is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? In other words, Paul is saying, look, if we have these covenant promises and these covenant promises are highlighted by unrighteousness, which means that we could just go out and sin all we want. God's still going to establish his covenant. He's still going to establish his will, and we could just sin and sin and sin and sin that God's grace may abound. And so if a human being, a stupid human being is what Paul means, comes to me and said, hey, God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on the Jews because we have the covenant promises. We have the oracles of God. We have the law from Mount Sinai. We are special. We are God's chosen people. God is unrighteous to judge us Jews. And Paul is saying, he's saying a human argument in the sense of weakness and absurdity. In fact, the argument was absolutely insane. Are you saying God can't inflict wrath just because he gave special privileges to the Jews? And so when Paul says, I use a human argument, he's trying to highlight, look, this ain't my argument. This is the argument of people who are presuming on God's kindness and presuming on God's grace to give the Jews special privileges but I'm not using that argument. That's not my argument. That's a stupid human fleshly argument. The argument being that God would be unrighteous when he inflicts wrath. No, God is perfectly righteous to inflict wrath. Let me summarize that again. When Paul says, is God unrighteous? What is this stupid argument that Paul is complaining about? Jews who say that since we have our privileges, God would never put wrath on us. And that's the whole theme of Romans 2. The answer to the rhetorical question is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? The answer to that rhetorical question is no, God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath. The Jews deserve wrath even more than the Gentiles because the Jews are sinning against a greater light than the Gentiles have because the Jews had the law, the Gentiles didn't. Paul is here dealing with a perennial problem. Whenever God shows his grace, sinners misinterpret it to think that sin is okay. They presume upon the kindness of God, not understanding that the kindness of God is to lead us to repentance. But they assume that the kindness of God is a condemnation of their sin. We go to verse 6 of Romans 3. Absolutely not. Well, that's the answer to the, re to the rhetorical question, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath at the end of verse 5? In verse 6, Paul says, absolutely not. God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? Now, what Paul is doing here is appealing to the Jewish knowledge and the Jewish certainty that God would judge the world. Now, that won't work with modern audiences, but Paul's not dealing with modern audiences. He's dealing with Jews who believe that God will judge the world. And if God judges the world, well then, hey, you're in the world, Jews. You're going to get judged too. 
Paul is using a common belief as a fulcrum to leverage his argument. Since it's obviously true to the Jews that God will judge the world, then it is therefore obviously follows that God will also judge the Jews. Let me say that again. Since it is obviously true that God will judge the world, then it is therefore obviously follows that God will also judge the Jews. Even though God is faithful to his covenant promises, and he will establish the Jews, give them land, offspring, and blessing. Now, as I said, this common belief that God will judge the world is not held today. But the Jews fully expected God to judge the Gentiles. So let me run through the argument once more. If you, you stupid, using a stupid human argument, if you say that God cannot judge the Jews for our sin because we have the covenant promises and therefore God can't judge us, well then how can God judge the Gentiles? If the Jews' unrighteousness highlighted God's righteousness so much because they sin, the Jews sin, and God nevertheless is righteous enough to establish the covenant promises, and so therefore the Jews can sin all they want and not be judged, and the covenant promise is nevertheless established, well then it also must be true that the Gentiles' unrighteousness must highlight God's righteousness, because the Gentiles are sinning, and if God shows so much grace to you Jews and lets you get away with sin and murder, well, he's going to let the Gentiles get away with sin and murder too, and the Gentiles aren't going to be judged. And so now what do we have? We've got a situation where neither Jew or Gentile is judged, and you know as a good Jew that that ain't possible, because you know as a good Jew that God will judge the world. Let's read Romans 2.9 when Paul says this, Affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. So both Jew and Greek were going to have affliction and distress for their sin. And, and the Jews can't say, well, it's just the Jews going to get judged, not us Jews. It's just the Greeks that's going to get judged, not us Jews. And that's, as a matter of fact, what they basically did believe. By the way, this judgment, I'm assuming, is at the end of time. How will God judge the world? He's appealing to the Jews' common belief in the judgment day at the end of time. Although, I don't see why it's not possible for a, for a Jew or a Christian to think that God can judge the world penultimately before the final final assize he can exercise judgments beforehand also but i don't think that's what paul's talking about here i think he's talking about judgment at the end of the world we go to verse 7 romans 3 but if by my lie god's truth is amplified to his glory why am i also still judged as a sinner again this is another confusing verse let's break it down first of all if by my lie god's truth is amplified to his glory this is an argument that Paul is assuming, not because he believes it, but in order to knock it down. And the argument goes something, it's profoundly stupid, and it goes something like this. We might as well say hooray for Hitler because World War II produced an advancement in science. And so Paul's saying that's the same thing as saying, hey, I'm sinning, I'm a Jew, and I can sin and sin and sin, and that just shows, highlights God's grace more and more because he establishes the covenant even though I'm sinning, and that amplifies his glory. So let's just sin some more so God can forgive us some more, and the more he forgives us, the more glory that people will see. And Paul is saying, is that your argument? Well, there's one problem with your argument. I am still judged as a sinner. And so all of my sinning in order to advance God's glory and to show all of his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy, if I'm sinning in order to get that to happen, I'm still judged as a sinner, so your argument is no good. I'm not getting away with it. I'm not getting away with this false amplification of God's glory. Again, that's just like saying, let me just, this is Steve Ackerson's great analogy here. Hey, Hitler produced an advancement in science. Look at all the rockets that were invented, the V2 rockets and, and such. 
and all the code breaking and all the computer stuff that was invented uh, in World War II, the nuclear bomb and such. Oh, thank God for Hitler, because he highlighted man's ability to make technical progress. Well, nobody would make such a stupid argument. And that argument is just as stupid as saying that sin will give more glory to God because God shows himself to forgive more. It's obvious these people that Paul is arguing with are trying to rationalize and justify their sin. We go to Romans chapter 3, verse 8. And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, the we there is the editorial we, I assume. He's talking about Paul. Paul says, people are saying about Paul, hey, God has so much grace. Paul doesn't teach the law. He teaches grace. So let's just keep sinning so God will have more grace. That's kind of putting it on the individual level, what the Jews were putting on a corporate level. They were saying, we Jews can sin all we want, and the covenant promises are still established. And so now people were also saying, hey, we can sin all we want, and then God will forgive us individually. And good may come from our sin. And Paul answers that question with, their condemnation is deserved. And condemnation means going to hell. (laughs) They deserve to go to hell for saying something like that. Now let us point out that this is what a lot of people say to Calvinists. Oh, you talk about God's grace so much, Augustinians. You talk about grace so much. You talk about grace so much. You don't talk about holiness enough. You talk about grace so much that we can just go out and sin and do whatever we want. Well... That is a misstatement of a Calvinist position, of course, just like it is a a misstatement of Paul's position. And notice that the very fact that Paul was accused erroneously of this proves that he was a Calvinist because people would not say of him, hey, you're preaching grace so much that people are saying you can just sin and sin and sin and sin and and God will forgive it. That's what Calvinists do, too. They talk about grace so much that people can erroneously accuse them of license. It's less likely somebody's going to say it to an Armenian who's always talking about we've got to do good, we've got to do good, we've got to do good in order to get saved. We've got to believe, we've got to believe, we've got to believe, we've got to do. We've got to do good. It's up to us. It's not up to God's choice. It's up to our choice. Paul did believe in eternal security, even though that term has been misused a lot. Oh, I'm eternally secure. I can sin all I want. No, you can't. That's stupid if you have the nature of Christ in you. Because you're born again of the incorruptible seed of God and, and, and there's a sanctified new living creature in you that is growing up and longing for the righteousness of Christ. You're not going to sin so that God can forgive you more. That is just ain't going to happen. So yes, eternal security can be abused, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. Any doctrine can be abused. How about the leadership of men in the marriage? Oh yeah, you can turn that into making a man a tyrant. You, you, can, you can abuse any, any scripture. Any, any doctrine, any truth, but truth is still truth. And we are eternally secure because once you've been born again of God, how's God going to unborn you? How's he going to make you not born again? What's he going to do? Change your very nature back to a, a, a fleshly sinner? I don't think so. The human beings, I mean, once a human being is born, can he be unborn? Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we any better? Are we Jews any better than the Gentiles is what he means? Not at all, for we have previously charged that both Jew and Gentiles are all under sin. And so what he's saying, look, you Jew, you people who keep saying that you have all the advantages of the Jews, does that make you any better? Does that make you any better than a Gentile? Not at all, because you're a sinner just like the Gentiles are a sinner. And Paul says, I previously charged that. I previously told you that. We are all under sin, Jew as well as Greek. Now, how are 
the Jews, as well as the Gentiles, under sin. Well, they're under sin's power and they're under sin's condemnation. They're under the power of sin and the penalty of sin, as people so often put it. Now, and starting in the next verse, going from verses 10 to 18, Paul is going to quote Old Testament scriptures, Jewish scriptures, Hebrew scriptures, which are designed to prove that all are under sin, including the Jews. Not just the Gentiles, but the Jews too. So Paul's going to use their own scripture against them to prove that they're sinners just like the Gentiles and they need to quit relying on their status as Jews to say that they're justified. Paul says in verse 9, Romans 3, we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Well, where did he do that? Well, he showed that the Gentiles were under sin previously in Romans 1, 18a. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that is clearly in the section dealing with Gentiles, natural revelation in the conscience, people that don't have the law. So he says in 118a that the wrath of God is revealed against Gentiles. In Romans 2.12a, for all who have sinned without the law, that's Gentiles, will also perish without the law. So Gentiles are under the penalty and punishment of sin. So Paul says we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin in verse 9 of Romans 3. Well, where did he say previously before Romans 3 verse 9 that Jews were under sin? Romans 2, 12b. All who have sinned under the law, that would be Jews because they're under the Mosaic law, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So you're, So the Jews are under sin. So this is Paul's theme here. Everybody's under sin, Gentiles and Jews. And so Jews don't go around spouting off about how privileged you are because you've got the law. Now, Paul says, are we any better? Now, what he means, are we any morally better? It doesn't mean that he does say in verses 1 and 2 that the Jews have advantage, so they're better off in the sense that they had advantage. They had the law come to them first. They had the oracles of God spoken to them first. So they were better off that way. They had more potential to get right with God. But they weren't better off in not being under the power of sin and the penalty of sin. They were equally condemned, just like the Gentiles were, despite their previous privileges. Now I need to point out here there is an alternate way to translate this verse. Instead of saying, are we any better, the NIV margin has, as an alternate manuscript translation, are we any worse? And then you have to translate, not at all, it can be translated as not in every respect. So the verse would read like this. What then? Are we any worse? Not in every respect. In other words, we're not any worse than the Gentiles because we had first access to the oracles of God, but we are worse than the Gentiles because we sinned against the oracles of God and we've sinned against a greater light. Now, that'll work, but ah, this is so complicated. It's much easier to say, are we any better? Not at all. We're not any better because we have the law. We're not any better than Gentiles. We're all going to be judged. Now, let's go to the famous passage in Romans 3, 10 through 18, where Paul quotes the Old Testament trying to show that we all, Jews included, are horrible sinners. Now, this is good to apply to modern-day Americans who think they're just, just as happy as they can be. I'm a good person, and I'm going to go to heaven without having to believe in Jesus. Well, let's see what Paul says about that. Let's see what the Old Testament scriptures say about that. Verses 10 through 12 of Romans 3. As it is written... Again, written, Paul is quoting the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not 
even one. First of all, let's make a note on Paul's quotations. They are not verbatim quotations from the Old Testament. They're fairly close. New Testament quotations are often meant only to give a general sense and not meant to be verbatim. There were no quotation marks used in the Greeks, and so today we, ha- we try very carefully to make it verbatim. They didn't do that back then. And another reason why the quotations are not exact is because they're taken often, as most New Testament quotations are, they're taken from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. But our English translations of the Old Testament use the Hebrew Masoretic text. They use different texts and sometimes they're textual variants. And another reason is that quotations aren't verbatim is sometimes the New Testament writers enlarged or abbreviated or adapted the Old Testament writing to suit their purpose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They could do it. We can't. Now, that's a big theological ball of wax there. I remember seeing a a book, one of these evangelical positions book. You know, people got different views, four, four different evangelical views on how the New Testament writers quoted the Old Testament. It's a big it's a big deal. Something on my theological do list I'd like to explore a little bit more. But anyway, let's get started on some of the scriptures. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, God does not exist. They are corrupt. Their actions are revolting. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And Psalm 53, 1 through 3 says basically the same thing, almost word for word. The fool says in his heart that God does not exist. They are corrupt. They are revolting. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, There is certainly no righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. The scripture is very clear, folks. We are disgusting sinners. Now let's look at the word useless that Paul uses in verse 12 of Romans 3. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. Now the psalm that he was quoting from says all have become corrupt, not all have become useless. And Psalm 53 also says the same thing. All have become corrupt. So what does this word useless mean? The ESV translates the word as worthless, which of course doesn't mean that people are worthless to God. It means they are worthless at finding God. They are useless. Apart from the sovereign work of God, no one ever could be saved, so they're useless in finding salvation, which is sort of the same way of saying they're corrupt. If you're corrupt, you're not going to be able to find God. Notice that phrase, not even one. Paul quotes in Romans 3, verse 12, all have turned away, all alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Well, as I said, he's quoting from Psalms 14 and Psalms 53, first three verses in each psalm. And he mentions that phrase in those two psalms, not even one. There ain't nobody. He quotes this, that phrase, not even one, three times in three verses to show that, hey, everybody's a sinner. There ain't nobody that's righteous. It, there's been only one righteous human being in the history of humankind, and that was Jesus Christ. Now, this drives the point home pretty good because the Jews tended to see themselves as not in need of salvation because they are righteous, they are holy. We have the oracles of God. We have the law. We have the covenant promises. Apply that to today, and you talk to some people, and they don't think they need salvation. They're living a good life. They have a nice wife and kids, three little children. Their clothes look like they've all been cleansed with Clorox bleach. They have a white picket fence and an Irish setter in the backyard. They're living the American dream. They don't need to get saved. 
It is often said that the hard part of evangelism, evangelism is not getting people saved, but getting them lost. In other words, you're not going to get saved unless you understand that there's something to be saved from. And if you don't think there's anything to be saved from, you're just not going to care. But if you realize that the wrath of God is on your head and that you're facing hell, well, now, that will be incentive to get somebody saved. And that's why liberalism stinks so bad, because what liberalism does is give people a false assurance of their own salvation. It whitewashes their sin, and it keeps people from looking at the salvation that they could have. Notice that Paul says in verse 11, again quoting these two Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, there is no one who understands no one who understands the depth of their sin, nor the elevation of the righteousness of God. And that's true not only of Jews, of course, but it's true of Gentiles. It's true of all of us. None of us can understand how holy God is. I remember one time somebody was talking about how he was having trouble with hell, and I said, well, you know, if you watch a Lifetime movie, a true crime movie, and you get so disgusted at these rapists and these murderers, and by the end of the movie you're saying, fry him, pull the switch. Well... We can get upset about the depth of those people's sins. Well, what happens if you elevate the standard of righteousness to God's standard and God looks at a little white lie and he gets just as disgusted at that as we get at a serial killer or a rapist? It all depends on your standard, folks. If you will realize how holy God is, you won't have any trouble with hell because, folks, if you're going to have people communing with God forever, there can't be any sin there, not in you, not in me, and not anywhere near God. That means there has to be a hell to take care of people who just insist that they don't want to have anything to do with God. We go to verse 13. Paul quotes another Old Testament scripture. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. This is a quote from Psalms 5.9, and I'll read that now. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Destruction is within them. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Their throat is an open grave. That metaphor is very clear. When you go into a grave, what do you find? Death. And so when these unbelieving people are speaking, they're speaking death. Even though they're flattering you with their tongues, they're getting ready to kill you. Talking about the tongue here, let's listen to what John Gill says, quote, An instrument of swallowing, and so may denote the sinner's eager desire after sin, the delight and pleasure he takes in it, the abundance of it he takes in and his insatiable greediness for it, likewise for its filthy stench, the communication of evil men being corrupt. Oh, gosh, I wish Joel Osteen would read that in one of his sermons. Now notice the quotation of Psalm 5, 9 is not exactly alike. Paul says in Romans three thirteen they deceive with their tongues. Psalm 5, 9 says they flatter with their tongues, but the result is the same. When you flatter somebody, you're deceiving somebody. Now, Paul quotes two Old Testament verses in Romans 3.13. That was Psalms 5.9. The last part of the verse, viper's venom is under their lips, he gets from Psalms 140, verse 3. They make their tongues as sharp as a snake's bite. Viper's venom is under their lips. The New Testament has something to say about the power, the evil power of the tongue. James 3.5-6. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Ooh, that's some great rhetoric, too. Ooh, I wish Joel Osteen would quote that verse sometime in church, too. Maybe Andy Stanley might like to, also. 
That little tiny tongue is a, like a little spark in a forest that burns the whole forest up. And that little tiny tongue in one's body can burn the whole body up, set on fire by hell, and the result is we burn like hell because of our tongue. Viper's venom is under their lips. Think about how many sins are created by the tongue. You know that old saying, sticks and stones can hurt me. Sticks and stones can hurt my bones, but words can never hurt me. What a stupid lie that thing is. Words certainly can hurt you. I mean, even the secular law has laws against slander. Slander can hurt people badly. How about that guy that was accused of being a terrorist? Richard Jewell, the movie just came out, a Clint Eastwood movie. He helped try to track down who had set the bomb there in the the Atlanta Olympics several years ago. And instead, he gets accused by the Atlanta Constitution of being a terrorist. And he has to go through all kind of trial. He was slandered. He lost all kind of money. People hated him. Oh, no, folks. The tongue is a the power of the spoken word or the written word is extremely powerful. And it can be very, very evil. We go to Romans 3, verse 14, as Paul continues with his Old Testament quotations proving that all mankind is sinful. Quote, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is a quote from Psalms 10, verse 7. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. That's not a direct quote, but the NIV Study Bible, John Gale and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that's the verse that Paul is referring to here. Jesus said something very similar. Matthew 12, 34. Brood of vipers, he's talking to the Pharisees. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Your mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Romans 3.15 Their feet are swift to shed blood. Not only do they talk death, they, they do death. They, they kill people. Isaiah 59.7 Their feet run after evil and they rush to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are sinful thoughts. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. That's the That's the verse that Paul is quoting. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Isaiah was talking about Judas King Manasseh, who had shed a large amount of innocent blood. That was the immediate reference. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that Paul had another verse, Old Testament verse in mind, Proverbs 1.16, because their feet run toward trouble and they hurry to commit murder. Same idea. Verse 16 in Romans 3, ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. This is, again, that's a quote from Isaiah 59, 7, the last part of which says, ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. Wherever they run, ruin follows them and wretchedness of the people that are influenced by them and who are murdered by them. We go to verse 17, and the path of peace they have not known. This is Isaiah 59, 8, dropping down a verse in Isaiah 59. I'll read that now. They have not known the path of peace, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made their roads crooked. No one who walks in them will know peace. The path of peace they have not known. Wherever they go, there is strife, dissension, and warfare. And we'll finish up Paul's selection of Old Testament verses proving that everybody's a sinner, Jew as well as Gentile, in verse 18 of Romans 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, first of all, let's talk about what fear that Paul has meant. It's not really clear. It could be fear as in the sense of the fear of hell, wrath, and damnation. John Gill denies that. It could be the fear of God's presence and power. John Gill denies that. He says that what it is is there is no reverential affection for God. In other words, I love you, God. I reverence you. In other words, the old-fashioned sense of fear. You have to be careful that word fear. It, can mean, it has two different meanings in English. 
There's no reverence of God before that. I think that I think that Gill is right. NFA Study Bible agrees with that, and so does Jameson Foster Brown. There's no reverence of God. Like in social media, OMG, oh my God, oh my God, oh my every time you turn around, some some worldling is saying, Oh my God, oh my God. I've even heard Christians do it start to do it now. One more example of how the church is influenced by the pagan culture around us. God ain't no granddaddy on a sofa doling out goodies at Christmas time, folks. He is the almighty God who created the universe, and we need to treat him with respect and reverence and all, and not take his name in vain, foolishly. What scripture did Paul quote from here? Psalm 36, 1, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked person. Colon. There is no dread of God before his eyes. Here's another scripture that Paul may have referred to, Genesis 20:11. Abraham replied, I thought, there's absolutely no fear of God in this place. This is Gerar, down there in the south of Israel right on the way to Egypt. They will kill me because of my wife. No fear of God. Well, Paul's probably referring to Psalm 36.1. There is no dread of God before his eyes. Now, let me give you a good quote from Adam Clark talking about how people in Europe have lost the fear of God. Now, he's referring back in the 18th and 19th century, okay? Quote, look at the nations of Europe who enjoy most of the light of God. See what has taken place among them from 1792, that's the year of the French Revolution, to 1814. That's when Napoleon was finally put away. See what destruction of millions and what misery of hundreds of millions have been the consequence of satanic excitement and fallen ferocious passions. O sin, what hast thou done? How many myriads of souls hast thou hurried unprepared into the eternal world? Who among men or angels can estimate the greatness of this calamity, this butchery of souls? What widows, what orphans are left to deplore their sacrificed husbands and parents and their own consequent wretchedness? And whence sprang all this? From that whence come all wars and fightings, the evil desires of men, the lust of dominion, the insatiable thirst for money, and the desire to be sole and independent. Well, now, if Adam Clark thought it was bad between 1792 and 1814, I wonder what he would think if he could have lived through the 20th century and got to see World War I and World War II. Who knows what the 21st century holds? We've made it through 19 years, heading for the 20th year. So far, so good. But don't hold your breath. Hope you enjoyed this audio. Hope to see you next time as we go to Romans 3.19. Starting with Romans 3.19. And we will discuss that very important topic of how we are saved by faith, not by keeping the law. Paul's established that we need to get saved in in these verses, and now he's going to talk about how we get saved, but not by keeping the law, but by belief in Jesus. See you next time.